and welcome everyone to the Closing Bell Show, where you can invest with the best. This is the home for busy people to learn with other successful investors, navigate the macroeconomic climate with confidence, and receive undervalued stock opportunities without having to spend hours researching. Today, we spoke to Alex Morris from The Science of Hitting. Alex is a former buy side equities analyst who has spent 10 years in the finance industry managing $1.2 billion in client assets. He now writes the very popular The Science of Hitting newsletter to over 10K people and is constantly sharing his research gems on his Twitter account, which boasts 40,000 followers. Today, we dive into the psychology of how to remain optimistic despite having a portfolio that could be down 60%. We talk about Netflix and Twitter's current business model issues, and we get Alex to highlight some of his favorite recession-proof stocks that you should take a look at. The friend, marry, or kill question. I don't know. When was the last time you had one of those questions? Uh, it's been a while. I, I roughly know the idea. I saw Ted Sarandos, the uh, co-CEO at Netflix, did a big New York Times interview this weekend. He was asked a version of this, and his answer was basically like, yeah. I'm not yeah, well, fortunately, we we changed the F word at the start to a friend, not the, uh, the, the one you're probably familiar with. Friend, marry, kill, Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg, or Elon Musk. Friend, Bezos, marry, Zuck. And I'm not a, I'm not a big, that's interesting. Guy. I've never looked too closely. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, he's done amazing things objectively, but some of the stuff's a little, he can get the cash. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. Bit of foreshadowing for later when we dive into Twitter. I was going to say, I'm, I'm not even a Twitter shareholder, but if I was, then I would definitely be on the cash <laughs> because he's, uh, he's, he's making their lives a little bit interesting. Yeah, yeah he is. <laughs> Uh, what what was the first investment you ever made, if you can remember it, and what interested you about it? Huh. First one I ever made. Gosh. Um, this is probably wrong, but in the 07, 08 period, I think it's the first time I ever really invested. There's two stocks that I can remember buying specifically. One was Evergreen Solar, which was at a time when solar is going to take over the world. No idea what you're doing as an investor. Just buy something that's in a space that's going to take over the world. I think they went bankrupt. I'm pretty fair. I don't know. If, I don't think I still. I, I don't think I still owned it, but they went bankrupt at one point. I'm I'm fairly sure. Another one was, I think it was called Health Sports HSPO or HYPO. I think they also went yeah. bankrupt. Their claim to fame was. These, you remember the Listerine strips oh, yeah. that you'd put on your dog oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. for a while? It it was that, but it, it cures a hangover. Oh. And being a young college kid, I saw the addressable market was very attractive. Yes. <laughs> um, the problem is I don't think they actually worked. And uh, that's a pretty important selling point on your products. So <laughs> I think they also went bankrupt. So yeah, two two bangers right out of the You're game. You're yourself here, Alex. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, I've learned a little bit in the last uh, 15 yeah, minutes. I'd say so. <laughs> to round out these fun ones, name one person you really admire in the investing world and why. Oh, gosh, there's so many. Does that have to be someone famous? Or no, 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 not famous? at all. Just your personal favorite. I mean, I'll do two. My, my, my good, who have, two people who have become really close friends through Twitter. Um, my buddy Bill Brewster and my buddy Francisco Oliveira, and they're both 
they're they're different in some ways that they approach markets and investing, but they're both very deep thinkers. And I, I think they're just two people who get better every single day, which in my mind is the highest praise that you can kind of give someone. They're just constantly mm-hmm. always working and trying to find the approach to investing that makes the most sense for them. Yeah. yeah could, well, could, so. you, could you describe the difference between the two of them, Alex? Yeah. Francisco is very much a... We we operate very similarly, which I just simply define as more concentrated buying something with the the clear intention of owning it for years. If you don't end up owning it for years, that means the mis- the investment was probably a mistake. Um, and just really trying to find those great businesses that you can partner with through any period of time, which right now is a fantastic test on what that means in real mm-hmm. life. It can be scary when you own something that's a little more fringe or has too much debt or whatever it may be. Um, so that's kind of the that's kind of the route that he goes down more and more. And Bill has a little bit more, and he wouldn't take this as a knock. He has a little bit more of a traitor in him. That feature or that characteristic of him, I think, has allowed him to build a little bit of a uh, a spidey sense for for when things are turning in a way. And he's willing to get out of a business where he thinks things are turning. And I've seen him do it a couple times now. Where if you're just a I'm a long term guy, I'm just going to ride it yeah. out. You can see how in a couple of these instances, that would have been a mistake and a little bit lazy to do so where something had materially changed. It was a reason. It was a reason to say, I know it just went down 10, 20% today. I'm still selling. And that's a, I think that's a really important tool to add to your, to your toolkit, even for someone who is a, I'm only a long-term yeah. guy. Um, Alex, you, you were a, a buy-side equity analyst for 10 odd years. Um, can can you give us the genesis story of the science of hitting? I, I think now you're you're working on that pretty much full time. Yeah, the short and sweet of it is, I went to I went to college in 2007 at the University of Florida Go Gators, um, and my dad's a plumber. So when I went to school, I was like, well, I don't really have any idea what I'm going to do with my life. I, I just go into building construction, and you know, I, I pretty quickly realized that that wasn't really the path for me. I specifically remember a physics class I took where I was like, well. Maybe my dad knows how to do this stuff, but I don't know how to do this. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to learn. So um, I, I stumbled across the Berkshire Hathaway letters at at some point around then and kind of just became hooked, started started reading about investing, went to, drove to the Berkshire meeting that year, which was a crazy drive with one yeah. of my buddies, um, switched my major to finance. And then as I got closer to graduating, I was like, okay, well, I, I love this subject material and I want to do this with my life, but how do I actually go out and get a job? Everywhere I wrote to said some version of let us know when you're 25 and when you have a CFA and an MBA and some job experience and I needed to get a job to get some job experience. (laughs) So um, I started writing around then and as I finally got a job in the industry, I'd I'd already come to the realization that writing was just so powerful for me in terms of kind of building a network of like-minded investors and, and, you know, putting my ideas out in a way that clearly expressed what I was mm. thinking as opposed to kind of deluding yourself sometimes into, Hey, this is a really well thought out thing. And then when you go to put it on paper, you're like, Oh, it's not, it's not really as deep as I thought mm. it was. Um, so, so I continued doing that over the past 10 years. And then as we come into, you know, 2020, 2021, I was just seeing what people like Ben Thompson at Stratechery or mm. David Kim, I, I just saw, Hey, there's probably a viable path here outside of me just posting my my articles on somebody else's website and getting paid a flat fee. Maybe I should explore some of this. Um, so I spoke to people like David and just talked through the numbers and I was like, Hey, you know what? I'll give this, I'll give this at least a year and see how it goes. And if not, I can always, you know, try to get back into the industry. So I launched in April, 2021 and just passed a year last month. And it's been, it's been going very well. It's been, it's been a fun ride. 
Um, I'm having, I'm living through my first experience now of what a subscriber base looks like when the market implodes and the economy may be, uh, on some shaky links. Mm -hmm. So that's a little bit less enjoyable, but that's, that's like the basically well, end of it, right? I, it's just cyclical to a certain extent. Out, out of curiosity <laughs> with the subscriber base, have they, have they held fairly strong over the, over this kind of, this period? I'm sure they're looking for advice in some, in a, in a weird kind of way that they're looking for guidance. It's been an interesting period. I think there's. Before I answer real quick, there's a couple of things going on where, for one, this is, you know, I kind of go through periods where I'm doing the quarterly earnings season reviews of the companies that I own or watch. And I think it's tough for that to be kind of something that drives that next subscriber. It's really more of, hey, people have been following it for a mm. while, may be interested in. But like this morning, I posted another article about Dollar General, which is something I've owned for about a mm. year now. It's not really going to drive that next subscriber because most people who have been following me would have already subscribed if they really cared about Dollar General. It's that it's that deep dive on Roblox or I'm trying to do Match Group right now. Those are the kind of things I think that get new people sure. in the funnel. So these these parts of the calendar tend to be a little bit drier, I think. Um, but overall, I think from what I see in my numbers, the retention remains very very strong. It's just been kind of the gross ad mm. number. It's hard to it's hard to get people to try something new, but we'll see if that changes in the coming weeks as earnings are kind of ending and deep dives are coming you, up. You pride yourself on your transparency as well, don't you? So, I mean, that's obviously going to build that, that loyalty to, to your content. Yeah. I mean, I, I, again, as I was starting out, I looked at someone like David Kim and I'm like, this guy does fantastic work and there's plenty of other people like him that do fantastic work. And I just thought, is there... Is there something I can add on top of, of what I, what I kind of do now to, to make this any better for lack of a, for lack of a different word. And, you know, coming out of the, the finance industry, I really, one of my big complaints was a lot of this, you know, this was stock XYZ was a great pick and, you know, the conversations are really centered around like, here's one individual stock that we like, and that did well, and it's less framed around the context of what that means in terms of portfolio, in terms of position sizing, in terms of returns, et cetera. Mm. So I just thought, why don't I just completely knock all that down? I've made mistakes in public before because I've been writing online for long enough. I know that, I mean, it sucks, but I'm, I'm, I've felt that feeling before. Why don't I just take this completely to put transparency to 11? Anytime I do anything, I'll tell you and I'll tell you why. Um, and I'll, you know, post returns on a quarterly basis. And it's been interesting. I think that I didn't really foresee this, but adding that layer to the service, I bet somebody has been fairly inactive anyways, but it stops even more of the tinkering that I might do without being forced to disclose to people that I'm even moving, you know, call it a hundred basis mm. points from one position to another. Just do a lot of less of those little tinkering things that I, I really wonder, like how much value do they actually add at the end of the day? So I've kind of just eliminated that from, from my decision making. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's what, uh, May 31st on your end, um, on our end at least, yep. um, a lot has happened since where are you we're in Sydney, Australia. Okay. Down under. Very nice. Where are, where are you? I'm currently in, in Florida. There you go. The Gators. Well, beautiful. There you go. Figure. <laughs> so in the last two years we've seen the, the markets have been incredibly turbulent, um, that huge dip over, over COVID and then this massive resurgence. And now things are starting to get pretty shaky, at least uh, in the growth stock sector. Uh, I saw over the last five days, there's been some resurgence. I think we're up 6% over the last six days. So maybe that's a sign of something. 
Um, can, can you give me your, your take on what's happening in the markets today and, and, and your short-term outlook, um, particularly in the growth stock arena? Yeah, I think, I think my, my biggest thought on what's happened, and you certainly see it at the company-specific level, we've seen this wave of, of obviously complete fear and worry as we get started with COVID in, in early 2020, which obviously seems like a very, a very appropriate response given what was going on at that time, um, followed by significant help from stimulus, um, you know, certain businesses certainly thriving and doing quite well during that period, kind of your stay at home stocks. And, and then a big question about whether or not this is a pull forward or if it's, you know, uh, something more important or something uh, more beneficial than that kind of like a structural change in demand. And what we've seen in many cases is, is probably a pull forward that wasn't actually even sustainable. Um, on the back end, some businesses look look a bit worse than they probably did going in. I mean, like for Netflix, for example, kind of the trend line on their subscriber growth heading into COVID, we're now below the trend of, of and that, you know, it's obviously inclusive of some fantastic numbers on the front end. So they're, they're below trend from where they were at. And I think it's kind of an instructive example because you see more and more of that across many industries, at least in my mind. So the article I put out this morning is about Dollar General and you know, Dollar General reported results and the market reacted very favorably to those results, but they basically just said, hey, the guidance that we gave you is still roughly right. And and after Walmart and Target, who are, you know, they're massive in the U.S., over half a trillion in U.S. retail sales every year, um, after they came out and said, we're really seeing some parts of the business starting to take on water, especially kind of the general merchandise category, so, you know, not not food or um, you know, personal care products, kind of that more discretionary spend. I just think the market may be asking itself now, retail is an industry where if you look at a chart of, of the industry sales, they're still, you know, call it 20% above what the trend line kind of was coming into COVID. So it's yet another example of where people are now asking themselves, or I think they should be asking themselves, is this actually going to hold? Or are we going to come back to trend here as well, or maybe even go below trends? Mm -hmm. So I just think that's really... That's really what I see as I as I look across various industries, and obviously add on top of that, uh, you know, cost inflation, fuel inflation, et cetera. It's just, I think people pretty widely recognize, yeah, the consumer looks like they're in a pretty good position financially, but people are obviously becoming a bit more skittish, and it doesn't help when every time you go to the grocery store, it seems like the products are more and more expensive. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Reading through your investment philosophy, I absolutely loved your your metaphorical depiction of, of how you invest, specifically the quotes from Stan Druckenmiller and, and the anecdote from Charlie Munger. Can, can you expand on that a little bit and, and particularly how you view portfolio construction in general and, and also your investment process? Yeah, so it's... Uh... This is where I think investing is really interesting because we all live in this world of kind of stock picking. Mm. And I think that's obviously an important component of being an investor, but there's also this other question of kind of asset allocation and, and, and just broader portfolio construction. So at a high level, I start from the perspective of asset allocation and really the idea of being a, a structural allocation in my portfolio, meaning at any given time, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not changing my stock bond allocation given my age and kind of how I think about what my savings rate will be going forward, I'm pretty comfortable with call it a 95 to hundred percent equity allocation. So that makes life really easy in terms of 
basically never holding cash and and always just thinking about opportunity costs in terms of the the watch list or the names that I currently own. You know, the alternative would be a bit more tactical, which, you know, say you could say, hey, I'm a 70-30 investor, but based on the market environment, I might go 50-50 or 90-10. I just think you get too much into market timing and it's 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 kind of a distraction in a lot of ways. And it's just very hard to do well over long periods of time. And I've seen that. I've seen that uh, personally, and I've seen it with clients in my old my old role as a kind of an investment advisor. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of what was the other part of it all? Sorry. Yeah, I mean, you've kind of ticked most of it, the, the general investment process. In terms of, I could probably add in terms of like diversification and stuff, how I think about that. I Because I run a, a concentrated portfolio with a small number of positions. I think I have, I think I have 13 holdings yeah. currently. I just think about those as in the kind of the context that Charlie Munger has said before, if you own, you know, a local McDonald's franchise, you own a gas station, you own, you know, one or two other businesses. I think anybody would reasonably look at that and say, yeah, you're, you're diversified in terms of your holdings as a business owner, especially if they weren't in the same, you know, geographic region. Mm. And that's really how I think about it. I mean, I'm, Microsoft is a, a diversified business in its own right and has a very strong balance sheet and, you know, if I own Microsoft, Berkshire, Pepsi, and, you know, one or two other stocks, from the perspective of a business owner, I think it's pretty clear that that's fairly well diversified. And, you know, I, I just kind of approach it with that, with that same thought process. You know, that also obviously introduces some uh, some risk of pretty significant volatility and, and returns that deviate from the market pretty significantly. But if you're an active investor, that's kind of the cost of any any shot about performance requires the risk of underperformance during periods of time. Uh, you, you mentioned that you you hold ninety five percent odd of your of your wealth in in equities. Can you can you explain mm-hmm. from from a psychological standpoint how you how you hold yourself together, uh, knowing that most of your wealth is held in these equities that are probably down you know forty to sixty percent on any given stock. Mm-hmm. I think. I mean, one is just perspective. I'm in my, I'm in my early thirties, just turned 33 recently. Um, you know, I plan on, I plan on being a net saver for, you know, another 10, 20 years probably. So I, I think I'm just constantly in the phase of, as, as Buffett likes to say, you know, the idea of buying hamburger meat cheaper than you were yesterday. Nobody, nobody complains when they're doing that. Mm. And that's kind of how I view the opportunity to buy, you know, additional shares of the companies I'm investing in. Um, so that that's really how I think about it at a high level. And then again, I just I know the prices move out move around very very significantly. But you know, I, I have a min- minority ownership position in these businesses, and and in many cases, you know, something like Dollar General is an interesting one because the business is really counter cyclical of anything. So if the market goes, I mean, that their same store sales in in uh, 08 and 09 were up basically ten percent each year, which is I mean, very very strong numbers. So. To the extent a stock like that goes down significantly during a period of uh, market angst or even macroeconomic headwinds, to me, it's just completely irrelevant because the business is, is as strong or, or more likely stronger than it was, you know, heading into that period. So I think it's just having that perspective. And then for each individual, it's, it's, it's making that decision in a way that's relevant for you. If you're, you know, if, if you have a lower risk tolerance and or your financial situation is different, you're 60 and you plan on pooling funds in the next five, 10, 20 years, you know, your, obviously your allocation should, should be adjusted to what's appropriate for yourself. Mm-hmm. What's, what's, have you always adopted that mentality or is this a, a long journey of learning from mistakes and transitioning into 
I guess the the ethos that you embody now. It's a good question. I I think I I certainly had periods in the past where I held more cash. I I think I've always had the perspective that when you get past 10, 15, 20% cash, you're getting into this dangerous territory where where you can really become someone who's market timing for lack of a better term. And it's something I've always kind of wanted to avoid. I become stricter in just saying cut the cash almost to zero. Because one, I think it's the right decision over the long term in terms of where my dollars will be. (laughs) Um, But two, I also think it changes the way that you think about the decisions you make in your portfolio and how you think about opportunity cost. A good example is right now when stocks are going down a lot, you have cash sitting on the sideline. It's fairly easy to say, I've been waiting to buy XYZ at a 20% discount to where it was at. Now I have that 20% discount to where it was at. I'm going to buy it. That decision is a lot harder when you look across your portfolio and go, well, to fund that, I have to sell something that's down 25%. I like these positions as well. I think the bar is raised a little bit in terms of that decision, but I think it also probably leads to to more thoughtful decision-making because you may need to look at something and go, I know this is down, but I need to sell this to buy what I think is objectively a better business. So I think it just raises the bar in terms of your decision-making. But yeah, a lot of this has been, a lot of this has been an ongoing evolution and I, you know, I think that's an important part of being an investor as well. You, you mentioned a, mecha- a second ago, Stan Druckenmiller, who I'm not intimately familiar with his investment process, but my my sense is it's quite a bit different than my own. And I think one thing to avoid as an investor and something I, I try to do better at every single day is is picking up learnings from people who don't see the world exactly as you do or play the game differently than you do. And I, I think there can be a lot of value in that, even if it never directly translates into t- how you, you know, make your own decisions. Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, might just look back actually going off that point. Was it that the two gentlemen you mentioned, Bill was the one that has quite different investment strategies to you? At times. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. At times. Um, and he's, again, as I, as I said there, and I think he's become, he's become very attuned to when something changes in a way that materially, materially, uh, changes the thesis. And that's something that in my experience personally and watching people who kind of operate like myself, that's something that's really hard for long-term investors to kind of do because you always want to, you always have this idea that something goes down 20 and you're like, okay, but my estimate of value went down 10. So it's actually more attractive than it was. And and that's where, that's where value traps really lie, mm-hmm. at least from my experience. Mm-hmm. Alex, before we jump into the stock breakdown uh, portion of things, I just wanted to get your view on the, well, get your outlook on, on growth stocks over the next uh, 18 months, we spoke about mindset. Um, and I'm, I'm curious how you're going to position yourself with this in mind. Yeah, well, the short answer is a very helpful one, which is, I don't know. <laughs> the long, the longer answer is, as I look at some of the names that I'm invested in that kind of fit into that bucket, I would just simply note that the sentiment on a lot of them has, has, has clearly become quite negative. And, you know, even the conversations I have with people, it's funny how quickly we've gone from what's the TAM, what's the most optimistic scenario, what are margins going to be like at at run rate to, you know, do they generate any cash today? Can they pay their bills? Fair questions to ask, but everything's, everything's jumped to the side of really what's the risk here and less so kind of what's the opportunity and upside. I think Netflix is a, a pretty good example of that because... They clearly have a number of levers that they can potentially pull in order to to kind of change their business, both in terms of the, the customer perception of the product, but also the financials in certain situations. Now, 
AVOD is an interesting one. Yeah, it's supported tier. Uh, theatrical releases is another interesting one. And then some other things that are a little bit behind the scenes, like staggering the release of shows, et cetera, et cetera. These are all, these are all open to them. And some of these ideas are probably uh, something that they should implement and they would, could have a material impact on the business. But those conversations are less, less, uh, less in front of people at a time when they're more worried with, is the stock going to go down another 10% or 20% from here? So we'll see what happens over the ensuing year or two, but uh, I feel like sentiment has become quite a bit negative. And generally speaking, that's a good time to own a stock, especially if the business is performing. Right. Well, we, we should chat about Netflix here and, and jump straight into it, as you, as you mentioned it. Um, just a little backdrop for you. The full year of 2022, the company reported that their customer base reached 220 million uh, paid subscribers around the world, an increase of 180% over the last five years. We also know that year over year, Netflix subscriber growth has uh, declined. It seems like... It seems like everyone owns a owns a streaming service in some capacity these days. Can can you set the scene for Netflix before we jump into it and and describe just generally what has happened and why why things have turned so aggressively for them? Sure, and I'll try to keep this short. Um, <laughs> they launched their streaming service in '07. Um, they've basically been running at everybody else for the past fifteen years. Um, there's always been talk about competition, which, is, which has existed in various forms over that period. Most notably early on would be Hulu and, you know, Amazon Prime Video. Um, Disney Plus launched in late 2019. Over the ensuing two and a half years, it's quickly built a 130 million global paid sub base. So just very significant growth, obviously, relative to that 220. It's a different... It's a different ARPU than Netflix, quite a bit lower, but still the ability to get that sub base. I think most people look at that and say, you know, kind of building up the sub base is where you start and you hopefully have the ability to take ARPU over time, which in the case of Disney, I think they pretty well can. Um, so anyway, so you, had, so you had competitive dynamics that were becoming quite a bit clearer than they had been. And obviously when you start at something close to uh, uh, this hyperbolic, but you start at something close to 100% market share and competitors come into market, you're going to have less than 100% market share afterwards. <laughs> so they've gone through that period. And, you know, as I said earlier, coming into COVID, they were at a run rate of call it 25 million net, net ads per year. In COVID, in the first six months of 2020, they added 25 million subs in six months. So just massive, massive growth. As we come to the back end, we had this question of what's it going to look like? I think the market somewhat thought that this is going to be con con contained to a, you know, relatively finite period of time. Um, as we got here to 2022, the expectations were trained very significantly and, and management is basically set up till now. We just kind of misassessed what that meant and we are going to have problems growing the sub base, some of which is, um, you know, specific to the company and other reasons that they gave at least are, are a bit more external and they'll have an impact on everybody. Um, you know, I think in terms of what this means for Netflix and how they kind of approach it going forward. They're in a position where they have a recurring revenue base on the current subscriber count of more than $30 billion a year. They have a content budget that's grown very significantly over mm -hmm. the past five to 10 years. I really think they've, they've navigated through that first period from the perspective of spend every dollar we can basically, or, or close to it and grow as much as we can, because this is a land grab and we need to, we need to try to cement our position, um, in the early days of this new industry that 
will presumably be around for decades. Um, now we've reached a different point of that kind of uh, growth curve. And I think they, they will use this as an opportunity to reassess, one, the level of spend, two, what they're spending on. I mean, it's very clear that in terms of something like IP, they, they just come from a very different position than competitors who have, have decades mm -hmm. of, of building, fran building or buying franchises. I mean, Disney is a very clear example of a, a number of franchises that Netflix has nothing close mm -hmm. to. On the other hand, you know, that $30 billion revenue base and 220 million global subscriber base also presents a lot of advantages. I, I'd like to talk about Drive to Survive, the Formula One series, which, you know, reinvigorated the sport in the U.S. and, and has had a big pull in other parts of the world as well. I just think if you, if you talk to the Liberty guys who own Formula One, it's pretty clear that Netflix was by far the best place for them to distribute that content on. And the price tag that Netflix has to pay on that as a result should presumably reflect some of that value. So I think there's a number of ideas like that, that they'll, they'll start to explore more deeply now that, now that, you know, priorities have changed somewhat. Yeah. It's interesting. You mentioned, uh, Disney. I, I definitely underestimated the, the goodwill that Disney had with consumers, uh, and their, their growth has been exponential over, over since, since 2019, like you said, and it's funny cause I was watching succession last night. I think it was like the last episode of, of succession that's out and they're trying to buy the, the streaming service and, you know, the, the main character's sort of business was this old, old legacy media business. And they have all the content and the streaming service is the, is the newcomer. And it, and it kind of feels like that where Disney had the upper hand because they had all these great flicks, Star Wars, for example, Obi-Wan Kenobi just came out. Um, do, do you see the Netflix original content model not scaling over the next, uh, little while, just because it seems like they're injecting so much capital into this original content model. And without growing subscribers, it makes it hard for them to justify that, that as a cost. Do, do you, do you see it that way as well? Yeah, I think there's, I mean, there's, there's definitely a link between the two and it's kind of funny, a big, a big knock on Netflix has been the kind of the, the accounting discrepancy between cash flows and, and the gap income statements, given how the content spends amortized. And I used to joke a little bit before we came to this period that if you're a Netflix fool, the thing you don't want to happen is for those two numbers to come together because you want the you want the content spend to keep growing because that that suggests that the subscriber base and the revenue base is continuing yes. to grow. Um, it's pretty clear that we're going to see the opposite of that now. Those two numbers are are going to start to converge yeah. at least with as things looks things look today. Um, yeah, I think it's again as I mentioned a moment ago. I just think it's a big it's a big uh, problem for them to address is is when they put you know, call it $200 million behind a movie. It's a lot different than making the next version of the Avengers where, you know, you have a fan base, you have a really good sense that if you produce a halfway decent movie, you're going to get, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars or a billion plus in, in box office revenues. And then it has the ability to really drive your streaming service on the back end. Netflix is, you know, with evergreen IP or evergreen content, you, you don't have that same assurance. Um, so that really requires you to up your game and, and to find a lot of things like squid game and the like, and, you know, we're, we're finding out that that's pretty hard to do. I do think there's also, there's potentially some of the, uh, issue here with what's the term for, you know, when you go to a grocery store and there's 20 different brands of, of grape jelly, it's harder to make a choice because there's so many options as opposed to walking into a Costco and you got Kirkland and you have Welch's and that's yeah. it. And, it may, it just makes it much easier. I think they have, they probably have an ability to cut back their spend in a way that actually adds to the user experience potentially. So 
There's a lot of options. It's kind of like perfect competition. When I walk around my area, there's like 30 Korean barbecue places and they, 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 they perfectly <laughs> compete against each other and they drive away all that, all the, all those extra dollars that they can make. And it just seems like that in, in this, in this industry. Now we're, we're going to jump over to Twitter as well. And you kind of alluded to this at the, at, at the start of the conversation with your, uh, scathing remarks of Elon Musk. I, I'm not sure he'll mind that you want to, you want to kill him in quotations, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> what, what's your take on this whole charade? Like, you know, Elon comes in, he wants to, you know, well, firstly, uh, Jack leaves, Parag comes in, Parag gets slammed, Elon comes in, Parag gets basically kicked out. Um, and then Elon says, ah, you know, it's 80% bots. Like, is this, is this him trying to, gu- gu- <laughs> is this him trying to garner attention? Is this a genuine bid? Like, what's your, what's your take on all of this? Well, first to clarify, if he's watching this, I do not want to kill you. <laughs> I just want to be very clear about that. We'll, we'll edit this out. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it's, I, I think how this all came together and I don't want to, so I, I first wrote about the company about a year ago and, and kind of the underlying idea that I talked about was, you know, the company had an investor day and then set some financial targets that in my mind looked pretty aggressive, almost immediately after they were laid out. Um, and you know, like a lot of businesses, they may have just, they have, may have just misassessed what, what COVID meant to their business, but you reached a period where, um, even the bulls, the people I talked to who own the stock and really like the company, even they were like, yeah, in, in terms of this monetizable DAU daily active user number, MDAUs, it's just a stretch to see how they get there. <laughs> and, you know, I think the company partly put out these aggressive numbers because they were facing activist pressure and it was kind of the way to, to save Jack's job at this, at the time, I think, at least that's, that's my read on what happened. So they're kind of backed into a corner and then put these, put these numbers on the scoreboard. Um, you know, you get to late 21 and Jack leaves and Parag takes his position. And I think in hindsight, I think that was the time for, for them to maybe step up and say, listen, this is to the extent they believe this, um, this is not, this is not really feasible. Um, we're going to take those numbers off the board, maybe have numbers that are a bit more long-term as opposed to two-year targets. And, and, you know, we're going to give Parag a fresh slate. They didn't do that. And I think it really became a problem when, when Elon shows up and starts making noise and then makes a real bid. Now you have to sit down in the room and, and try to present numbers to people or, or give some reason to say that this deal is something we shouldn't do given the financials of the situation. I just, I just think that's really, really tough if, if you're sitting there and you go, you know, we're going to, we're going to come to market in three months or six months and tell people that we can't hit the targets that we gave them. So I, I think in some ways they got backed into a corner on that one and it was a partly, you know, partly a self-inflicted wound, but. In, in their defense somewhat, they, they kind of felt that they had to do it at the time in order for Jack to stick around. Um, you know, so, so Elon made the bid, obviously there was a lot of talk of someone's going to come over the top and there's plenty of people who want this asset. It's so valuable. Um, and, and then we saw that, you know, that's really not the case effectively. <laughs> I mean, nobody, nobody really, there was a lot of chatter, but nobody showed to make a competing bid. And, you know, now we're talking about it in the other direction, where is Elon going to try to try to negotiate lower and, um, it sounds, I, I, I haven't followed the, the, you know, nitty gritty of this incredibly closely. I, I've been reading a lot of Matt Levine over at Bloomberg, who's just done a fantastic job on all yeah. this. It sounds like 
despite the noise that Elon has made, it sounds like behind the scenes that the financing's firming up a little bit and uh, the deal may potentially be getting closer to where it needs to be. So it's pretty fascinating that the spread is still still incredibly wide. But um, yeah, it's a it's a tough situation for Twitter. You know, another notable thing when Parag came in and there was a bit of a reorg, he there were there were three people who effectively I don't know if they were necessarily promotions, but they were prominently called out in terms of in terms of the reorg. And you know, two of the three people have since left. So I'm sure internally it's a situation where and not to mention the stock price is, you know, lower today than it was at the time after the first trade of the IPO and back in thirteen. So it's a very tough situation, and culturally, I, can't, I I imagine it's even more so, especially when you're competing with, you know, Facebook, Google, et cetera, for talent. They're, the ability to pay and the ability to have a stock that that is really meaningful as part of that comp that makes like life very difficult when you're when you're trying to compete for that top one percent of talent or top ten percent of talent. Yeah, hundred yeah. percent. Yeah, they've tried as well with multiple different releases, spaces, super follow, Twitter blue all trying to drive daily actives and, and I guess, optimize monetization. But, yeah, things look grim. Do you think there's any way they can correct their course? Yeah, I think on, you know, it's funny, and I, I speak about this a lot from, or my, my perception on a lot of this is really from a user because <laughs> I use the product all mm. the time. Uh, spaces seems like they really crack something, and, you know, maybe that's still true today as, as a writer and someone who accounts, you know, my, my, my user growth for my subscription service, the vast majority, at least historically has been from organic Twitter, mm-hmm. from, from building an audience on the platform. Twitter bought something called review, which is essentially a competing newsletter service mm-hmm. to Substack. And when they bought it, it was a really small team and, you know, basically a, a relatively new product in terms of functionality and the like. But it's integrated directly into your kind of Twitter user base. And you can see how that could potentially be really compelling. And I kind of wrote in the first article that I put out about the company that I think it's a good example of where a lot of their problems lie. The service has some pretty glaring, and I'm, I'm as far as I know, they still haven't addressed some of these things, but it has some pretty glaring feature gaps. For example, for one, when you read an article at the time, when you get to the bottom and they have a thumbs up or thumb down, thumbs down for the article, it wasn't even a button. It was just a picture. You couldn't click it. Jeez. So you, there was, it wasn't a real thing, basically. Um, another glaring example, they wrote a blog review. The team at Review wrote a blog two or three years prior that said, you know, here's how you can kind of build and sustain a subscriber base. One of the things they discussed was annual subscriptions, which is something that's very important as a product feature for a writer like myself. Mm-hmm. To this day, as far as I know, review still doesn't have annual subscriptions. They only have monthly. So, you know, it, it, it's simple things that if they if they spoke to three writers who do this for a living and asked, yeah. what, what gaps do we need to fill? It's it's stuff you should be able to fix very, very easily. Their inability to do so, in my mind, speaks to a lot of the problem. And I, I've just always questioned whether or not, whether the approach should be to go out and buy something like that versus finding ways to really intelligent intelligently partner with someone like Substack to say, listen, this isn't our core competency. We are kind of the social network for someone like you, and you have to have us in order to grow your business and we'll participate it, participate in it that way. Um, but yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, the business is overwhelmingly advertising revenues and no matter what you say about subscriptions, tipping, super follows, et cetera, 
they just really haven't shown any ability to to get the user base to be willing to pay for those things. So they're a difficult spot. And again, just to add to the prior answer, you know, now you're dealing with uh, cultural issues as well and employees. And, you know, there was a, a lot of talk about, hey, if Elon actually buys this company the, internally, it's going to be a big issue. And, you know, you're starting to see big names of the company leave. And that's rarely a good thing. Parag wrote, uh, pretty prescient in hindsight, you know, that basically there's going to be a lot of noise. We're just going to keep our heads down and, and continue to do the work that we need to do. And that was a letter he wrote to employees when the deal was either first announced or when it actually closed. And, you know, I think we've seen over the last six weeks or so that that has proven very, very difficult to do. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not good for Twitter. Might move on into the next phase of the podcast. We wanted to open up the floor a bit and, and discuss a potential exciting opportunity that's captured your attention. It could be an undervalued stock. It could be a swing trade or, or even a macro play. Uh, just for the listeners to, to hear where, you know, your eyes are and where your heads are. Huh. That's an interesting one. Um, what do you think? Well, I like a lot of the names in my portfolio right now. Um, the fact that the fact that most of them have gone down a lot more than they've gone up certainly helps that prices look a bit better. Um, let me pick a name I don't own. I think Five Below, which is a it's I, I've written about the company previously. I need to do an update. It's a it's a retailer in the U.S. that basically their value proposition is most of the products are priced at five dollars. It's kind of uh, tchotchkes and things that are sold to, uh, preteens, teenagers. It's, it's something like you go there and if you had 20 bucks, it's a place you can go and find four kind of silly things to buy that you'd like to have, but that you wouldn't really see sold anywhere else, uh, necessarily. Um, I think, I think the title of the article I wrote at the time, I might forget it now, but it was something like we sell, we sell stuff that nobody needs basically. Right. So it's a, it's a unique con, it's a unique concept that's found a bit of a niche and, has worked very well and you know they, they they have a huge unit growth opportunity to the extent the economics look similar to the base today is very attractive returns and in then incremental capital that's invested in the business um you know i think they put out get investor day fairly recently and put out a guide of getting to you know call it ten dollars of earnings in the next handful of years and i last i looked the stock price probably moved like crazy because retail's been all over the place, at least U.S. retailers have been all over the place. But I think it was getting down to, you know, call it a low double-digit multiple of, of that kind of earnings projection. So that's that's one that's worth looking at, and I'll be updating shortly. Uh, another really interesting one in retail is, I think, Ollie's, which is a, Ollie's is effectively a closeout retailer. So, you know, let's say a sporting good, sporting goods store goes out of business or, you know, Procter and Gamble decides to change the packaging on on a certain uh, size of Tide. Ollie's is a banner that buys those products at a huge discount to what you'd pay at retail, and then sells them to customers for you know call it fifty percent less than what what a comparable product would cost at a normal store. What's interesting about Ollie's right now, in my mind, is as Target and Walmart both kind of indicated uh, two weeks ago now, I think. Um, They've seen a real mix shift in their business from the huge kind of general merchandise discretionary growth that they saw throughout the pandemic. Now they're seeing a mix shift back towards um, back towards consumables and the like. So the products that are 
it, my understanding is the products that are in the stores, obviously most of those will just be sold through the channel in terms of discounts mm -hmm. at those retailers or markdowns at those retailers. The stuff that's still in the supply chain, I think in, in theory, some of that could end up at Ollie's. So their, their merchandise and their inventory should be really, they should have a lot of opportunities right now to attractively buy merchandise. The big question in my mind is their customer base is someone who I kind of view it as, okay, I, I got done with my shopping needs for the week. I have $25 left. I have $50 left. I'm going to go to Ollie's and buy, uh, you know, some, some products to buy that, that consumer is certainly struggling right now as, as everybody is to some extent from high fuel prices and, and high, uh, food prices, but I think they might be getting hit more than most. So that, that shopping trip might just completely drop away. Um, so I think it's something to watch closely and to see how their results kind of roll out over the next coming years, but it's a story that's been really messy. And I think the, the underlying economics of the business, at least historically have been, have been fairly attractive. Yes. Alex, mate, it was an absolute pleasure to, to have you on. Um, and we'd, we'd love to have you on again at some point. So this platform is your platform. If you have any ideas or any, um, any opinions on stocks that people should be looking at or some analysis, you're always welcome to reach out to us and, and use this as a way to, to, to spill your guts, so to speak. Um, is, is there anywhere you would like to send your guests before we wrap up the show? So the best place is probably, I assume most people are probably on Twitter, uh, at TSOH underscore investing. And then, yeah, I, I run the TSOH investment research service, quick pitches, spent, spent 10 years as a biased equity analyst been writing online for a very long time. Um, with the service, I, I send a uh, deliverable every Monday and every other Thursday. It's, 